0: I mean, I have—I could tell you 25 overdose stories, mm. and it happens that one of the most unusual ones that I know a lot of the backstory of comes from my own family. And I was talking to my parents about it and saying, like, "Can I tell a story about Grandpa?" And they're like, "Oh, he would have loved, mm-hmm. loved it. He would have loved it. He would have his uh, his uh, sort of narcissistic side would have kind of loved the fact that you're talking about it, and also just to sort of uh, to the point being that I have gained some understanding of of him." At the end of the day you know
1: yeah Yeah, for sure okay yeah well this uh sounds good to me i think about those times quite a bit actually if you go to there's a place near where i grew up called uh, barkerville i don't know if you've ever been there it's like yeah
0: yeah gold mining town
1: yeah yeah it's a preserved gold mining town from like the i don't know late 1800s early 1900s type thing I guess everybody's always in awe of the work they did and the conditions they survived in and stuff like that. I always look at that and I'm like, well, they did have some pretty good drugs on hand. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So to do the type of work in those conditions, you know, that kind of cold, digging through cold rock in the the wet, like I can't imagine that there weren't a lot of people. Especially with the Chinese influence at the time, right?
0: Opium, absolutely. Yeah. And my, I mean, for my grandpa, he was. That was in the days of all and phenobarb and like barbiturates were still very much around and mm-hmm. nasty, nasty stuff.
1: Well, it's funny, uh, I was just reading an article about that too. How uh, some scientists are actually starting to push back against how far the pendulum has swung away from drugs as a tool, especially all the drugs that have potential for pendants, addiction. Yeah. I read an article published in 2000, well, last year, I guess, and they were talking about how ridiculous it is that when we discovered benzodiazepines, they were a miracle drug because the drugs we had other than that were were <laughs> pretty rough around the edges in, in comparison. Yeah. I mean, everybody forgets that benzos are, you hear about a lot of people overdosing and benzos being involved or people trying to kill themselves with benzos, but it's very difficult to do. The LD50 on benzos is, you you would have to have a shovel full and a half to get started. I mean, they don't tend to kill you on their own, but they do... They do have interactions with other substances that make them dangerous, and that's like what we're seeing with benzo dope and stuff like that, which is still kind of a mystery to me. I mean, medicine is supposed to be about risk versus benefit, right? Not let's not take the risk of anybody becoming dependent on any drug, no matter what the what the benefits may be. That's mm-hmm. why I'm curious to hear and weigh the uh, the pros versus cons. You know, when I hear a guy who's practice in medicine for that long and in an age when there was no such thing as whatever we have now, this, this bizarre idea, that's not really framed in reality anymore. Where did he live? I guess is a good place to start. Was he, he, was he in Western Canada at the time or is he in the States or?
0: My grandpa came from Ontario uh, and was, was trained out in, um, at Queens, uh, and then was going to do a, uh, uh, residency out in in vancouver and was really drawn to drawn to coming out to the west his partner and then future wife my grandmother was was with him in uh, queens and they were going to come out and and kind of do the west coast thing and he was going to be in this uh, uh hospital in vancouver and partway through his residency he um he was given the opportunity to shorten his residency and come right out and and join a, a family practice that was desperate. They were desperate for GPs at that time. This was, this was in 1948. Oh, um, okay. So or, 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 or 47, 48, somewhere 47. right in between there.
1: Okay. So we are, we're past where like cocaine has been made illegal and, and all that type of stuff.
0: That's right. So, yeah. um, and because he was, he, he was, did an expedited, um, jaunt through medical school because of world war two, he was enlisted in the army while in medical school, because the expectation was that these guys who were, who were in medical school would be pushed through really quickly and then go overseas. And, um, and fortunately for him, he, the war ended and, uh, he still got his expedited, uh, medical training and then was on his own. That's what's
1: called timing folks.
0: He masterful timing. And, uh, (laughs) And then again, he kind of locked out a second time in that he hadn't completed his residency, and it was recommended that he could go out and and um, start a practice out here in the in the valley because they were so desperate. So this was really small town medicine, where he was um, covered a a huge amount of of territory and um, did did a lot of it by by car and uh, and drove out into very remote parts of of the community and the surrounding communities to see sick people and deliver babies and patch people up and, and keep this small town moving. And just knowing the geography of, of where I live now and where, he, where he was, uh, the amount of ground that he covered out here was just tremendous. So you're talking uh, like Abbotsford, Chilliwack mission. like M- Mission, you know, mission, Silverdale, uh, Hatsik, Daroche, De Dudney. Okay. Th- those surrounding areas. Right. Cause, uh,
1: If you have a car at that time, I guess, yeah, they must've, they must've had the main highway through there, but probably not much else, I guess. No, no.
0: no. And he, um, notoriously drove a a Volkswagen Beetle. So, um, just to sort of set the, set the scene. And again, it was, it was sort of trial by fire, I think. And I think it was really an innovative time for, for doctors from the stories that I was told that in addition to being a GP, you were also assisting with, with surgeries. You were also working in a very makeshift emergency department. Ambulances were in their infancy, so if there was a a drowning or an emergency out in the remote spots, you didn't necessarily call the paramedics, but you called the doctor. I um, see, and so the doctor he's kind went of out on call twenty four seven. He was, and you know the stories that that um, that my mom has shared with me were, was that the, the phone would ring at all hours of the day, and that he would you know, leave in the middle of the night and not sleep throughout the night and then come home and have a nap and then go to his family practice and then come home and have a nap in the afternoon and then do it all again in the evening and very fast paced. Hmm. And again, in the absence of all of the technology and all of the comforts that we know now.
1: We just have this thing about not letting physicians sleep.
0: You know, I, (laughs) I, I don't think it worked well then and it still doesn't now. And it's something that gets ingrained in, in medical students as sort of like a rite of passage. And at some point we'll have to accept that the human body and brain don't do exceptionally well um, when stretched that thin. <laughs> but,
1: yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's, it's kind of like a, uh, it's like a Marines or a SEALs thing, right? You're, yeah. you're you, you, they want to push you so far that you can perform under great duress at with no sleep and at a quarter capacity. And, yeah.
0: You know, as a result, I think he gained a lot of practical experience and my my grandpa always sort of claimed that he wasn't the best or brightest doctor, but from everything I've heard from people in the community who I've met and what I knew about him was that he really succeeded in meeting people where they were at and being innovative and being creative and um, in, in reaching a humanity in people in this style that he kind of developed where you were going to all these far remote corners with people who were um, real sort of working-class people too. He also delivered half of the town for sure uh, right. within that time period. And so, again, just when I think back to like how much responsibility there was on, and not just on him, but on on any of those professionals in these small communities at that time, it's just huge.
1: Yeah. You'd think you could get into some real strange situations too, because I don't know what the population density in that area was like then. I, it probably was still substantial. I guess that area has been growing and expanding for a long time. But sure, you could still. I'm sure he 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 would have been able to, you know, get into areas where there's people who are living a very different way from what, say, the people across the across the highway are living, type of thing. And you'd Absolutely. see all sorts of diversity Absolutely. that way. And who knows how they're, what kind of you know, how their culture accepts the the help and and what yeah. goes along with that.
0: Yeah. And you know, like I recall my mom telling me stories that, you know, if a family who who lived out in the bush or, or lived on a farm, say, weren't able to pay a medical bill, they would they would bring meat or there there was one occasion where a, an entire bear was left on their front doorstep right. um, as like a form of repayment kind of a thing. So mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, we're we're probably heading back in that
0: direction here. <laughs> we might very well be right fairly shortly. Uh,
1: <laughs> might want to hone in on those skills and watch some YouTube videos if you're not uh, up to date on that kind of stuff. Definitely different than what we got going on now.
0: It is, it is, and so the the other the other thing that was so different at that time was that this was very much at the dawn of. of I wouldn't even say modern pharmaceuticals because they, they have changed so much since then, but there were some, some things, some pharmaceuticals that were in their infancy then that only, you know, sort of gained popularity. And then certainly ones that, that we don't see anymore.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That would, that's a really interesting time. So what, uh, what time period was he practicing? Like when did he say beginning of the fifties type of thing? Was that. Uh... the late,
0: Practicing from the late forties until the, uh, mid-70s, roughly.
1: Okay. So yeah, that's probably, if you look at it, just from a free trade kind of innovation, you have all the extra money coming to North, into North America from the, the post-war drug companies hadn't uh, formed. I mean, there was there, like Bayer, and there's companies that were existing at that time, but they hadn't really been corrupted to the core or near close to it at that time it wasn't until like i guess near the time when he retired when things started just the tendrils started to to get in there with the corporatization of everything and then yeah so that would have been i I think so a very because probably he didn't have there wasn't many rules you know i don't think he would have had very many rules to follow other than the basic like do no harm and, you know, your Hippocratic oath, but, you know, would somebody come out there and, and look into his practice or, you know, how was that? Was there any regulations like that? I wonder,
0: I mean, I'm sure that he was, that there was the the governing bodies that there were today, at least in some form or another. Mm. But I think um, in terms of prescribing and in terms of access very, very different. So from what I understand, you know, I, um, a drug rep would come into town with their rolling cart and with the hottest new drugs and would sort of do their tour of, of going to physician's offices and saying, you know, do you want to try this? Um, here's what you can prescribe it for. Here's a case of it to, to try out kind of a thing. I see. And I mean, from and we'll get into one drug in particular here, but I—I I, this was the era of, like I said at the beginning, of all and of uh, barbiturates and of early opiates. Mm-hmm. You know, we've all seen in kind of the old movies that originally heroin was, uh, you know, came in a cough syrup bottle and was used. Um, this was a little bit later than that, but the uh, the drug of interest in this case is is hydrocodone, mm-hmm. by way of uh, a drug called Novohistex. You can look it up, but that's very Different different trade names. The research I I found showed that it was fully discontinued in 2020. Though other forms of of codeine or hydrocodone syrups are out there, and I mean this was in the last uh, 10 years really popularized mm-hmm. by the uh, you know by rappers and by mm-hmm. you know famous famous rappers who who mix it with Sprite and and it's scissorb and this is really the same thing. <laughs> um, now or they were certainly drink. not. Or purple or purple drink. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. This is not what they were calling it in the in the fifties. <laughs> but but it was it was plentiful. And he he would get it by the case and prescribed it quite uh, readily mm-hmm. um, as sort of a, a cure. It was great for a cough, it was great for anyone who had a had a cold or or any kind of respiratory symptoms because it soothed your sore throat, it settled down your your irritated airways, it slowed down your breathing a little bit. It helps helps with diarrhea. Helps with diarrhea. Helps you sleep. You get a a buzz off of it. um, That whether or not someone says they they appreciate it was certainly certainly a part of the part of the remedy.
1: Yeah, I don't know what the uh, euphoria response rate is for hydrocodone. It's got to be pretty pretty high throughout the population, though. Um, I think so there are like uh, if you're a rapid metabolizer through a certain uh, metabolism set then i know you can like uh, codeine is gets changed by your liver into morphine and if you're a rapid metabolizer just a little bit of codeine can convert very quickly to a lot more morphine than it would for other people and it's kind of the same case with uh, hydrocodone but so, I mean, regardless, probably lots of people appreciated its, its pain-killing effects and appreciated all the other things you said there, but there would have been quite a few people who were like, hey, doctor.
0: <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> you got to get me some more of that cough syrup. Yeah. And and he had an abundance of it and had, you know, cases of it and used it himself and used it at the early, like in, within the, the time that he was practicing as a physician, I think used it because he liked it he used it because it did give him a, a buzz and mm-hmm. could give him kind of a, a euphoria and uplift him throughout the day. As we know, well, um, it's perfect for if you're under stress
1: and you, you do respond to that drug that way. I mean, it's, it's, we've both talked about it. It's, it's kind of the perfect remedy to that, to that feeling of being overwhelmed, or if you're, You know, it it takes care of the stress. It also gives you a little bit of energy, but it settles you down too, so that you can keep calm in situations that would rattle people more, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And so what I know is that it was, you know, the the drug reps would come by and and give him an abundance and and he was he got so sort of familiar with it that he prescribed it quite readily and people did, like you said, people did come back and say, Hey, I need more of that. (laughs) Uh, And he had a a sort of a community of patients who, who needed that. And I don't think that was unique to him. I think that was quite a common, a common thing, both with, with, with hydrocodone and barbiturates and all sorts of those drugs that they were readily available and there wasn't a fraction known about them as it, as it is today, not a fraction.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I it's, it's a strange thing. I look back at those times, like any time before they made everything schedule one, like people were using hallucinogens, people were, there's a large population or large percentage apparently of, of stay-at-home women who were taking opiates throughout the day kind of thing. Or, you know, it's just, there were large populations or subsets of the population who were using some type of drug that is now illegal to kind of just Take the edge off. I guess that generation never really talked about that stuff in that
0: way. That, you're exactly right. That, like, in terms of uh, it being a household discussion, mm-hmm. addictive behavior wasn't wasn't a household discussion. In fact, it was a household secret. I think. Yeah. Um, well, no, you,
1: I I don't know if it's even a secret so much as maybe for some people. I like, like. How did your did your grandpa tell his patients that that he's he used that product himself.
0: I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But I will say this: that within uh, his community, it was n- known well enough about his relationship with hydrocodone that that when he retired, he was given a like a a liquor bottle full of hydrocodone with a martini glass on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This and, is uh... and that there and that and that no one batted an eye to that.
1: Yeah. In many ways, we need to look at that and learn something in comparison yeah. to how we're looking now. The, the, the lens has been distorted and uh, there's obvious problems with uh, maybe taking that too lightly. But I look at a case like that and I, I look at it like, you sh- like anybody who is involved with healthcare should. It's risk versus benefit. So, I mean was the public harmed by your your grandpa's use of hydrocodone or was he able to do things that maybe he wouldn't have been able to otherwise it's a, it's a great question right something yeah. to think about there and personally i mean let's look at if longevity uh, our western culture is obsessed with longevity for some reason if longevity is the 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 metric you're after i mean if the guy makes it to 95 that's kind of a hat tip. And, you know, I, I had this discussion with my dad a little while ago, I was talking about how, if people understood how pharmaceutical grade or, you know, regulated drugs, they are dangerous, but they are also very manageable long-term. They're not like people think of uh, think of somebody who uses say like methamphetamines would be the most extreme example. Mm-hmm. And the media has done an excellent job of conjuring up this person who's on the street and they've got probably mental health issues. And, and by the way, they're using methamphetamines and, you know, they, they do these, everyone likes those uh, like that intervention show, which is nonsense and the, Mm -hmm. the before and after pictures and stuff like that. And it's like, because of that, people are really unaware or the idea is very exaggerated of how dangerous the drug itself is in comparison to the indirect effects of that drug what it does to your ability to have a stable lifestyle or, or have, have a stable home life uh, relationship, uh, keep you employed and off the streets. And it's more of those other factors that are contributing to the way that person is behaving and looks and is presented uh, that combined with mental health issues. And yeah, I, but it's it's unfair to pile that all on. It's Well, it's not unfair, nothing to do with that, really. It's not correct to pile that all on to the onto the drug and say that drugs are bad because look at this person. That's, that's not how it works. That's not how science works.
0: Yeah. And I, to me, I think this story, and as we move on to the kind of the next chapter of it in a moment, it is interesting in, like you said, that, that there are a lot of people in our society who are high functioning under the use of a substance for a long period of time. And that it has many, many faces. Mm -hmm. What I think becomes interesting about my grandpa's story was where it diverges from it being something that was fairly open and, and kind of acceptable and known to, in his old age, what that started to look like and, and how his use of it then did teeter towards secrecy. Yeah. That's something I can, I can really relate to. And looking back at my early, uh, the first times that I ever tried an opiate or experimented with it to see what it felt like and I didn't go back to it the next day to then when I was using it in secret and, and had to go back to it the next day. And it generated a a different feeling of coping in me than it did earlier in the road when I, when I was just trying it out and it, and it felt good.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a big, that's a big piece of the whole puzzle right there. It is. So, you know, after my grandpa retired and he, he received this, um, this, you know, liquor bottle, 26 or full of, of hydrocodone with a martini glass. Presumably he, he was able to, he was no longer practicing. He did, was able to write his own prescriptions for a period of time. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, to be honest, if he was writing prescriptions for that for himself, but I do know that even into his old age, he was able to, to get prescriptions for it from his own doctors. Now Mm -hmm. within the medical community, there's a, the widely accepted term of the old boys club and that physicians look out for, for each other and Mm -hmm. that a retired physician has some privilege that, a someone who's not a physician would have within that community. And, and, uh, he was able to go to his family doctor family, various family doctors, you know, as one would retire and he'd get a new one kind of a thing and Mm -hmm. still obtain a prescription for it. And, um, I was talking to my dad about this because he, he, my dad in my grandpa's old age would often accompany him to the doctor Mm -hmm. for his appointments and just to help with hearing and help with all of the information and and appointments and stuff like that. And, you know, my dad recalls the last time he got any hydrocodone, he had said to his doctor, oh yeah, just one more thing. I, I need Novahistex and his doctor had said, well, what do you need that for? You know, you, you don't, you Mm -hmm. don't have a cough. You're not sick. Well, Mm -hmm. I just, I. I, I like to have it and, and I usually have some on hand and kind of a thing. Yeah. And, uh, and his, his doctor said, well, I, I can't get it by that name and ended up sort of um, reluctantly saying, okay, yeah, sure. And wrote him a prescription for the equivalent of, of Novahistex or some sort of a hydrocodone syrup. Mm-hmm. And, and my dad, my dad sort of shaking his head and saying, well, you kind of pulled one over there on him or, you know, was that necessary kind of a thing? And I think that's an important part of the of the story in that that there is that sort of either enabling behavior or at least I think a lot there are many many people within our population who couldn't go into their doctor now or within the last number of years and say hey I need a prescription for hydrocodone for no reason and receive it <laughs> without question
1: <laughs> yeah yeah it does depend on the physician for sure I mean. Uh, doctors aren't uh they're not silly they can they can pick it out when you're like that that would be these days you'd classify that as classic drug-seeking behavior yes and that doctor probably well maybe that doctor flagged him immediately for that but then looked at the situation and thought here's a guy who's been and done things i can't imagine he's made it this far and he's asking for, you know, something that's relatively benign. And uh, yeah, it's not, uh, it's not what I'm supposed to do, but I'm going to make an exception. And I think there's a lot of healthcare professionals out there who see past the regulations sometimes. And uh, maybe that's what that was.
0: Yeah, I think it, well, I think it was exactly that. Hmm. And I'm not, I don't, I'm not knocking or blaming that doctor for it, but it's just, it's, with a drug like that, I mean, it, it required access and required him to have the support of someone on the other side to to help him get it. And uh, and that's not to say he he certainly wasn't using it all the time because a bottle lasted him for a long time. And I think that that, that last time that he got it, it lasted him for, for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I would challenge anybody to do a clinical trial. You go dose per dose, alcohol to Novahistex maybe not Histex because it's got a lot of other garbage in there, including a lot of sugar. I think, I think they, uh, yep. they put a lot of sweetener in there. So maybe go just, uh, you know, dose to dose, make it uh, pure ethanol in whatever form is palatable and same with hydrocodone and equivalent dose day to day and see who lives longer. See who deteriorates faster and see which has more impact on that person's functioning and uh, way of life
0: an, an interesting, interesting challenge. And now that we are re- recommending that trial take place, <laughs> <as a disclaimer, laughs> well, but it's, it's an it's, interesting discussion. Look,
1: if you got the money to make that trial happen, I mean, we, there's, there's so much of that type of information that is just, I know why it's, they don't do those trials because it yeah. doesn't fit the. The narrative is was an, and has been set up a certain way and it's it's been done for a purpose and to change that is going to take monumental effort. I mean, there's yeah. people out there who are trying, but uh, it's going to take a long time yeah. because man, did they brainwash the shit out of people over the last, you know, basically when, from when your grandpa retired till now, it has been an onslaught. Like a media campaign, a blitzkrieg of anti-drug this and anti-drug that, for you know uh, racial division uh, purposes, for any time they needed a scapegoat, you know, it just it, it they've used it effectively that way for so long. I just I don't know if it'll ever change, but
0: yeah, and it's it's very interesting that codeine syrups and hydrocodone syrups became much more strictly regulated and banned. After they were adopted by the, by the black community in the United States. (laughs) Like the diff, I, I just,
1: I am amazed sometimes that black people don't continually riot in the United States. I mean, the amount of just blatant, they've been using them as a scapegoat for so long in these under the, and anytime anything gets out of control, Anytime a a drug gets sensationalized in the media, I mean, that one was perfect, right? Because it's not only is it being sensationalized, but it's causing people to freak out because their kids are going to use drugs because the the black people are singing about it in a song. So therefore it's the black people's fault. And there, there needs to be significant evidence to back up making the decisions that are being made, but they're unfortunately not made by people who know that much about drugs.
0: no. So as my grandpa, um, was continuing to age, he, he had congestive heart failure. He had aortic stenosis. Um, so a narrowing of his, his aorta. So his cardiac output was, you know, had rapidly declined and was, was uh, in shocking kind of low numbers, but he was otherwise a very physically capable. (laughs) When I say otherwise, besides his heart failure, he was a physically strong person. Um, quite a small person, you know, as he Got into his 90s, he was he weighed about 100, 120, 125 pounds, uh, but was still very capable, walked every day, still worked in his garden How in, in ways that he could. And he was also the primary caregiver for my grandmother, whose own health was really de- declining and her, her physical needs. She was not as physically capable as he was. We had home support. And my family really helped to to rally and and help look after her too, but he was, it was, they were in their own home and it was very much his, his, as he saw it, his duty. And I, you know, when I look back at my grandpa, I think he was really uh, in some ways plagued by his sense of, of, of duty and his perfectionist thinking, his uh, catastrophizing, his worrying, his guilt. Um, and this need to, you know, work himself to the bone, uh, even though there was other help around and there were other options and alternatives. I think, uh, he, he carried that a lot. Mm. And when I think about. Sounds uh, familiar, right? It sounds very familiar. (laughs) When I think about how he sort of would have moved through his day compared to, or, or compared to, or similarly to when he was a younger man as a. A family doctor with a whole community to look after. I think he had probably some of those same feelings of either feeling overwhelmed by the day or feeling like a little bit of a high or a buzz was going to help him kind of get through that and could elevate him. And in his nineties was very, very high functioning and, and coped with some of those uh, mental health characteristics that, that you and I are so familiar with. He also certainly had traits of, of being obsessive compulsive, of, of really um, being, when I say fastidious over, over certain things to the point of, of, of worry, to the point of, of, uh, of obsession where it was, he could really fixate on, on certain things being perfect or Mm -hmm. things that he was doing were not good enough and not perfect. So when I look at those aspects of his personality that I think became heightened as he aged and knowing that he had, had this syrup in his cupboard that he, that if the need struck him or if that urge struck him that he would go to only then in his, in his old age, it wouldn't have been as open as it was uh, probably in his younger years. It would have been something that he did more quietly. I would expect, I know, because it wasn't until very late in his life that I ever, that we kind of clued in like, oh, this is what's happening.
1: Yeah, and what? Uh, it, it's a shame that that had to be the case there, or that he felt that that had to be the case. When I have somebody come into the pharmacy and I see they're elderly, and if I look and you know, if you're over, if you're retired, I mean, obviously, I I, I automatically have some extra respect for you. You kept it together. You made it to that point. You know, that's a, an accomplishment. Anybody over 70, I think you should be given some sort of an award. You know, you've, uh, you've battled this long at, <laughs> and you're still standing. You're, you know, especially if you, you got a good attitude, those people impress me. But when you get past 80, past 90, it should be basically across the board, whatever the hell that person wants to do, <laughs> as long as it's not hurting anyone, you let them do it. Because that person deserves, they've, they've spent the time to at least have that much autonomy. You know, and I mean, obviously, you've got problems uh, if you, giving a, a total autonomy to people who have, are in cognitive sure. decline. But in your grandpa's case, where it sounds like he was very much in under control of his own affairs. Absolutely. Um, why in the hell? Give me one good reason why that guy shouldn't be able to have some over his stacks. Really. Uh, sure.
0: I, I, I can't, you know, other than, well, my, the other than that I'm about to say doesn't, isn't, a, isn't a, a reason to say no to that, but uh, it was starting to interfere with his, his own health. And, and uh, I think for him, his own physical constitution was changing mm-hmm. and, but that, that sort of tape that plays in, in our head doesn't change. Right. Maybe it amplifies. So maybe it amplifies. So, I guess with that comes just increased risk. But we've talked about this many times, and I've I've talked about it many times that I really believe that people have the right to live at risk. And whether you're a a person in your nineties living in your own home, substance free, you you are still living at at some degree of risk. Uh, whether you are an unhoused person, whether you, whatever your limitation m- may be, there there's there's risk associated with it and you're allowed to assume that. So, but for him, it, that behavior did certainly put him at higher risk. So he was already starting to have some episodes of fainting and of conscious and, and partially conscious collapse where, you know, he would be out walking and, and, um, it would be too strenuous for him. And he would, he collapsed a couple of times and the ambulance was called a couple of times. He, He also had atrial fibrillation. So, so his heart rate would, would, Go sky high, and again, his cardiac output would would decline, and he would get into a, get into medical distress.
1: Yeah, congestive heart failure is horrible. For yeah, it really exacerbates any kind of cognitive issues as well, right?
0: Yeah. So there were a couple of times where the ambulances were called, and there were a couple of times when he did go into hospital, and he uh, was very uh, pragmatic and very realistic, and and said like, I don't want, I don't want heroics. I want to be in my own home period. There was, you know, there were, there was a one time where he was cardioverted for his atrial fibrillation, but otherwise the treatment was very conservative. And he said, like, just get me back home. Mm -hmm. And so in his, in his, as he was sort of moving up in his nineties, it was not an uncommon thing for him to, for the ambulance to be called. And he would eventually decline, decline service or decline care and, Mm -hmm. and sign off on it or get one of us to. So that said, though, we would, we would want to be with him. And so when the ambulance would be called or when my grandma would call us with concern and then we would call the ambulance, some of us or one of us would, would rush over there. So when he was about 94 years old, th- that's an estimate as best I can. I think it was about a year before he died. The ambu- my grandma had called us and said that he was um, sort of s- sitting in a chair and was unresponsive. He was breathing, but his breathing was very slow and irregular. And, um, what should she do? And my, and my grandma, I think at this point was 91 or 92. And so we had said, <laughs> let's, let's call the ambulance and get them over there and, and we'll come. So my older sister and I got in the car and and rushed over there. And it's about a 12 minute drive from, from Abbotsford to, to mission. And we hustled over there and got there. And as is commonly the case when, when ambulances aren't available, the fire, Firefighters come first and uh, they're usually in abundance and they're usually, and I don't want to sound too critical of firefighters here, but they're usually sort of one is doing the task and the others are, are circling and any <laughs> any ER nurse that's listening will know that. And so <laughs> when we arrived at, at their house, there were, I think five is my best recollection of how many young male firefighters had were surrounding my grandpa. Mm-hmm. And they had an oxygen saturation probe on his finger and and they had oxygen in his nose and they're all fussing all over, all around him. And again, he weighs probably 120 pounds. He was just a tiny, tiny man at that point. Mm -hmm. And uh, his consciousness was starting to kind of perk up a little bit with the oxygen. Mm -hmm. And he sees me through the part of the firefighters and he says, Corey, Corey, come over. And he calls me over and he was very hard of hearing. So I got very, very close to him. And he whispers in my ear, "I just took a little bit of Novahistex, right. and <laughs> the, you know, I had sort of that moment where it's like, oh shit, okay, <laughs> um, everything's okay here, folks, and and okay, so what do you want to do?" And he said, "I'm I'm I'm fine, but I I took some Novahistex, and again, this is like I said, the the risk of um, like with anyone who isn't." taking their, an opiate regularly, they have some time away from it. They go to take it. And this is when we are at greatest risk for overdose. Mm -hmm. Um, When, when a relapse or a slip occurs, you take what you used to take and it hits you much, much harder and very differently than what you were used to. And so when I think about my grandpa, um, this is not fentanyl, this is not heroin, but it was a syrup that he was used to taking and probably taking X amount of quantity of. Now you put that into a 94-year-old body with congestive heart failure and low cardiac output, and it's going to hit a little different, as they say.
1: Yeah, yeah, that, that's a important thing that uh, whether your body changes from losing weight or age, there's significant occurs along the way that will change the way that drug is metabolized in your body. And I guess the other thing, and I've seen this before with people who are using pain medications as prescribed, but early on when they weren't used to, a, 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 like if they've never taken an opiate before, I've seen people have trouble where they take, you know, maybe hydromorph for something that's fairly potent. And especially with elderly people, they for, maybe they forget that they already t- taken a dose. They take another dose. They're sitting there for a little while and they're like, huh, did I take it? You know, they're getting more confused. Mm-hmm. And every time they get confused, they think they forgot to take their dose. I've seen, uh, I've seen at least one person. Uh, they would have died that way, and it wasn't, you know, it, it it wouldn't be like your typical overdose. But I wonder that with your grandpa, you know, at when you're at that stage, your memory's already not working great. You know, you're fatigued. Your your oxygen saturation is low. Maybe he took some, you know, wandered around for a little bit and was like, "Huh, I should take some
0: hit that Go back, take some." You know, that could happen too. Sure. Or just like not having the insight that like two tablespoons is going to knock me on my ass kind of a yeah. thing. Yeah. And, and you know, I, so, I mean, the end of the story there, first of all, is that he was, we, we sent the firefighters away. I think we signed a release document and then we kind of got him comfortable and, until he perked back up again. But what fascinates me is, is thinking about sort of knowing now what, if I were him and knowing some of the similarities in, in his personality and my personality and some of those traits, like what, what, in that, on that day was, was driving him and what, what was his motivation? Was he feeling overwhelmed that day or did he just want to get high that day? And I just, I, I I look back at him and think I'm um, I'm more curious now than I was. And I think I understand him with a little bit of a different lens now than I did.
1: Certainly. Well, I, I can tell you with almost certainty that if by some, you know, I, I don't know how long I'm going to last, but if I make it to my 90s or 80s or probably, you know, I'd say 75-ish, I'm definitely going to start <laughs> messing around with whatever I, I get my hands on because I I think you get to a point where, you know, you've got so many aches and pains, you've got plus just a I mean, I get bored sometimes, right? You know, I'm a busy guy. I try and do all sorts of things to keep myself occupied, but I get bored. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like, you know, when you're, you're past that point where you're, you're not, you're no longer looking ahead at, you know, your future endeavors are not really, you know, those prospects are not worth turning around in your mind very much. So you're just kind of sitting around, you know, existing, right? And yeah, you probably probably want to spice things up. That would it may be, my be guess.
0: that. It may be that. And I know and that's certainly a, an issue that that gets talked about in groups and talked about in in um, meetings with that I attend that that boredom is a driving factor. Oh, huge. Absolutely it is. And and is a is also a human condition.
1: Mhm. Yeah yeah I, I I don't know I guess it's probably like everything else where some people have a greater ability to self-soothe or entertain themselves and I I think self-soothing is more when you can handle a lot of stress you've got problems but you're still managing to cope with that but it's that's to me is a different type of thing than I've got everything done I'm ahead of it thing everything's generally under control from my perspective. Um, Now what, you know, Mm -hmm. that, that kind of boredom where you're like, I'm kind of taken care of here and I've got extra time. That's the one that gets me. So I guess, I don't know, what, what do you call that? Entertaining oneself.
0: (laughs) I think, I think that's something that is a common, a common feeling. Yeah. You know, and I just, I think going back to stigma, like how that drives, how stigma drives secrecy, um, how stigma fuels shame and make, can make people retreat. And I don't know, like, I just think if, imagine if he could have said that more openly that either I'm bored or said like, here's what I'm doing.
1: Yeah. I would love to see a society that had reached that level where, you know, if you're an adult and you've made a decision that's, that's not hurting anyone else, own it. And you're, especially if it's one that if you're doing something that does carry potential risk, other people should know about that. Your family should know about it. Your friends should know about it. Anybody who's, uh, you know, close to you should definitely know. I can't imagine how many more people are dying because of that, that part of stigma where they're, they may be, I mean, I, I look at myself and I think how many times did I pick up the phone and then put it back down, pick up the phone and put it back down. Even with, um, calling out for help from the association. And then with my parents, like it looked long, it was, I don't know how long before, like it was years, I guess, really before I, I let them know how serious the situation had become. And, uh, that's a weird thing when you think about it,
0: you yeah. know,
1: like I love those people Those people love me. Why would I would want to know if they were struggling that way?
0: Why wouldn't I tell them? You know, and yeah, it it makes me think. Like, first of all, I totally agree with you. And I, I, my, um, my relationship with hydromorphone and opiates didn't start until after my grandpa had died. But I was thinking, I got me thinking, like, imagining what if that wasn't the case? What if he was had been still alive? And my grandpa and I talked about everything we had, like, we had a, a, a relationship where we could talk about the wildest things. And he, you know, was very much into the internet and very much into current events and what was going on. And, and, uh, when I think back to like, when I was really struggling, imagining he could have been a person in my life that I could have had a really frank and fascinating conversation with, and he would have been someone I think who would have really got it and uh
1: absolutely yeah he lived through it i mean he he saw that change he saw the cultural shift you know he he went from being celebrated as a doctor and uh and by the way ha, here's this gift for you know everybody knows that you're (laughs) you're into the nova hystex to like having to quietly
0: disclose yeah I think my need to to share this story was it has always lingered as like a, a kind of a quieter story within my family. And when I think about like what this process of me sharing my own story with the world has been, that it is sort of like I've described, helped me to get behind my story and, and relieve some of that shame and relieve that, like the, the cloak of stigma and, And it's made me feel differently. And I don't want to think back to him and associate any of that shame with his story or stigma with his story. And it's like, no, he was doing the best he could. He screwed up in many ways. I'm sure I know, but was also heroic and all of these wonderful things. And none of that is affected by the fact that he had a relationship with hydrocodone absolutely it yeah, is not it, 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 it does not define him and it's not to be sort of labeled or burdened with sort of a, a shameful stamp yes as we are encouraging of everyone else in our our uh, our community no oh I, I i look back at him and say like let's let's push all that other shit that was attached to that aside
1: people don't need to be reminded about the that particular struggle that they're having what they need to do is grow as a human being and realize that there, there is a difference between them as a person and them and the struggle they're having with whatever substance. It is not one thing in the same.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And again, why I shared that story is that it, if it is a 95-year-old retired physician or a 25-year-old person out on the street or nurse or pharmacist or, or whatever, it's the same mm-hmm. it, it, everyone has different things that got them there everyone has different pains and different traumas but there's also like so many common threads that you can see and and one of those common threads is that people feel misunderstood and feel either forgotten or pushed aside or or stigmatized mm-hmm. that is common across the board and the common thread there that is something that connects All of us, I think.